0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Freggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased to welcome Naomi Klein to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Naomi is an award-winning journalist and author and a tireless activist and climate campaigner. She's the author of international best-selling books, including No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics. This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, The Shock Doctrine, and No Logo. Naomi is the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. So thank you very much, Naomi, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast
1: happy to be with you.
0: So a good place to start maybe would just be, I'm just wondering, there does seem to be a a shift in terms of awareness or indeed acceptance about global warming in the last year. And I'm wondering, where do you think we are? Do you think that's a fair assessment and just maybe give a little bit of a a snapshot or an overview of, of where you think we are in that debate?
1: I think the debate about the climate crisis has progressed substantially in the past year, both in terms of a shared sense of urgency, not to say that everyone shares it, but I think it's much more widely shared across sectors of populations who define themselves as progressive, you know, more liberal leaning. Just a few years ago, climate was an urgent issue for people who self-identified as climate people, you know as as environments, as people who are who are focused on this issue, but people who were more focused on economic justice or racial justice or gender issues, it would often seem to kind of forget <laughs> that we are in a climate crisis. Issues would not be seen as interconnected nearly as much as they are now. You know, I'm really struck that among pretty much all of the progressives leftists who I know, who are not environmentalists, self-described environmentalists, if you ask them what they consider to be the most urgent issue of our time, they will list climate change. And you see this playing out In the elections in the United States, where among Democratic Party voters as they choose their candidate to lead the party, climate change is is up there with health care as the top issue, you know, seen as most urgent among voters. So that's a huge shift because just a couple of years ago, climate change would rank like 20th on the list of issues in regular polls that were done on this in the United States. So that's a big change. And I think there's also been a change in terms of the kinds of responses that are being seriously debated, right? When I published this changes everything in 2014 and talked about the need for an approach akin to what's now being called a Green New Deal, which would not approach this as a narrow pollution problem, as an you know, something that could have a, a narrow technocratic solution but rather a crisis that demanded a new kind of economy, a broad infrastructure transformation, that was really seen as sort of out there and a really extreme position. And now we're seeing the Green New Deal as a framework that's sort of understood as uh, necessary around the world, whether it's inside the UN, whether it's at the EU Whether it's, you know, once again in the debates to choose a leader of the Democratic Party in the United States, not to say there's consensus about it, but just, you know, a year and a half ago, it wasn't really on the political agenda. So it's a really big shift.
0: Absolutely. How important is the Green New Deal and why?
1: So I think it's important to clarify that there isn't a Green New Deal. There are many Green New Deals floating around and different approaches. There's lots of different frameworks and initiatives that are using that branding or similar branding. And so it really isn't one thing. The approach kind of took off and it's not a new, it's complicated because it's been around for more than a decade and it has been used in different contexts. But the sort of current iteration kind of took off in November of 2018 after the Democrats won the midterm elections, took back Congress, and were fully expecting to just have some sort of a victory parade. And instead, they were greeted by young climate activists of the Sunrise Movement occupying the office of Nancy Pelosi, who's the most powerful Democrat in Washington, demanding a Green New Deal. And at that point, it was just sort of very vaguely framed as a way to fight climate change that would create good jobs at the same time and that would put justice, social justice, racial justice, gender justice at the center of the plan. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and other newly elected young congresspeople people came together and started fleshing out what that would mean and came up with a resolution for a green new deal which takes as its starting point the IPCC report on the 1.5 on keeping temperatures warming below 1.5 degrees celsius and that report saying that if you know we want a good chance of doing that we need to cut global emissions in half by 2030 and we need to be at net zero by 2050 and so I think one of the things that's really significant about the Ocasio-Cortez initiative with Senator Ed Markey is that really for the first time, you see American politicians recognizing the greater historical responsibility of the United States because they don't just interpret that IPCC target to mean that the United States has to half its emissions by 2030. In fact, what they're calling for is for the United States to be at 100% renewable energy for almost every part of its economy by 2030. So it's recognizing that as the world's largest historical emitter, the United States actually has to move much more quickly, which is you know enshrined in the UN Climate Convention. But you know, up until that point, U.S. politicians had not been willing to recognize that. And that's been a huge barrier. And so now there's, you know, different politicians have put out their spin on this. Uh, You know, Bernie Sanders has put out a lot more detail of what a Green New Deal would mean for him. Elizabeth Warren has done the same. There's the beginning of a discourse around what a truly global Green New Deal would mean in terms of North-South equity, in terms of not replicating colonial extractive relationships where poor parts of the world become resource colonies for lithium and other core inputs for a low-carbon economy. And so, you know, these are the broad outlines. But, you know, I think that the short form of what a true Green New Deal is, is the blueprint for the post-extractive economy. And it is a plan that fights poverty and climate disruption at the same time. A justice, it is a plan for a truly just uh, transition that is science-based, but justice-guided at at every step.
0: Yes, very interesting. Um I had intended to talk a little bit more about things like its political viability or feasibility and so forth, but become aware that that's a a particular frame of of looking at this question that emphasises certain things and maybe neglects other and, you know, a key part of this new deals is, is a sense of urgency. And I'm just wondering, do you see more awareness of, shall we say, what the actual issue is and the kinds of things that need to happen to deal with those issues rather than, is this good for the Democrats? Is this good for the Republicans? There's been a lot of noise around that kind of thing.
1: Well, I think there's been a lot of punditry from people who haven't really grappled with the science who are sort of new you know relatively new to even focusing at all on the climate crisis but know a lot about how to count seats in the senate and have their own reasons for sort of dragging this onto terrain where they have a greater comfort level and can talk about why it would be impossible to do anything on the scale but the truth is that things become possible in the midst of crisis that are not possible without crisis. And this is true for the right and the left. And so just because people understand that we are in a crisis, just because people understand that we are in an emergency does not mean we are going to get a Green New Deal. We could just as easily get absolutely fascistic immigration policies and geoengineering. There are many different ways of harnessing people's fear and state of emergency and understanding that we really, really have to do something. And I think more than anything else, one of the reasons why it is so important to have a very clear plan for how to deal with a climate crisis that does put justice at the center is that if we don't, when people do finally wake up and start demanding that there be some kind of action, the action that our current systems will, will offer them will not be the kind of action that will serve the vast majority of people because nothing our current governments are doing are serving the vast majority of people. So why should we expect climate to be and an exception to that, so this is really a bottom-up initiative, which is a kind of anti-shock doctrine approach, right? We know that the shocks are going to keep coming, whether it's the Australian fires, whether it's you know the Amazon burning, whether it's unprecedented staccato superstorms. This is the reality of living in a climate disrupted world. But the idea that that necessarily serves as some kind of progressive wake-up call, I think, is incredibly naive. It only leads to A progressive justice based response if we have huge numbers of people organized in social movements with politicians who are accountable to those movements pushing that agenda forward. And so I think that that is what all of this organizing around a Green New Deal is ultimately about. For that moment when people do realize, okay, we need bold action, we need to be sure that it's the right action. And this is why, you know, I've been a little bit critical of groups like Extinction Rebellion who see their role as only just sort of forcing governments to declare an emergency without putting forward plans for how to respond to those emergencies. And, you know, they respond, well, we're we're saying they should have a constituent assembly where we come up with the responses. You know, frankly, I don't think that's good enough because I think that we actually have decades of work to draw on from the global climate justice community, which helps us map what that response would be.
0: It's very interesting you say that. It often is presented as a Marshall Plan, as a, you know, as something like the, the original New Deal—a very top-down kind of approach.
1: Well, the original New Deal was not. I mean, a Marshall Plan and a New Deal are not the same thing, and this is why I favor a Green New Deal as a framing device, as opposed to, so, you know, some people have have advocated for, you know, the Marshall Plan, the post-war reconstruction, right, a framing or a wartime mobilization. Those really are top down. Those really are examples of, you know, centralized governments just kind of dictating from above what the response was going to be. But you know, the history of the New Deal is more complex than that. The history of the New Deal in the 1930s is, is very much a push and pull between organized social movements that were staging general strikes that were demanding more and more of FDR's government it was much iterative it was not one thing it was dozens and dozens of uh, of initiatives that were constantly being changed improved rolled back in the face of competing pressure pressure from above and pressure from below you know in truth i think that the scale of change that we need is kind of a combination of the sorts of social policies that we saw and ecological policies that we saw during the New Deal era in the 1930s and the industrial transformations that we saw in the 1940s as part of the war effort and the reconstructions that we saw afterwards um, uh, with Marshall Plan. Um, But in terms of a sort of a historical framing, I prefer the New Deal precisely because it's less top town than those other examples.
0: Yeah, what I wanted to get to, yeah, was this question of how, where they meet and because there is an element of the, you know, top down, whether the emphasis, as you say, equally on on a bottom up, and you've written a lot about the role of whatever the blockadia, blockadia activists working together. You, you mentioned Extinction Rebellion. I know Greta Thunberg recently said that the strikes have achieved nothing. I was wondering about what you think is the potential for social movements and what needs to happen next. Where are we with our social movements and change?
1: So, I mean, I I think that when Greta says that the strikes have achieved nothing, she's talking about carbon and that's, and we have to keep our eye on that above all else is, you know, ultimately, you know, we are, this is a struggle where we can quantify our results. um, And it can be pretty discouraging because emissions are going up, you know, every year. So, you know, I I disagree that the strikes have done nothing. And I think Greta has also acknowledged that they have played a huge part in this shifting of the discourse and the building sense of urgency that we were talking about earlier. They've been a real game changer. And that is the first stage. You know, We need that urgency if we're going to achieve the kinds of change that will lower emissions as quickly as possible. But until the emission trajectory changes, then, you know, we're in no position to to declare victory of any kind.
0: Yes, yes. I think one of the interesting things, you talked a little bit at the beginning of, about the change in awareness and acceptance maybe of, of climate change among certain sectors or certain parts of the American population. But there does seem to be this polarity still very strongly politically, and it's quite striking. The connection between views on on climate change and, and political position, whether you're on the right spectrum and, and don't believe, um, and on the left. I'm just wondering about how worried you are about that polarization when it comes to making the New Deal, Green New Deal, happen.
1: Well, we've been living with this polarization now for more than a decade. It really started opening up around 2008. Before that, there was the, the climate crisis was seen as a more bipartisan issue. You had prominent conservative politicians and figures you know talking about the need for a market-based response and so on. And then it became really, really uh, bifurcated uh, along party lines and, and lines of worldview. I actually think that that is starting to change. I mean, yes, Trump and Bolsonaro still seem to deny climate change, although not as consistently as you might think. I mean, Trump has said it's a Chinese hoax, but he's also said he knows that it's real. Scott Morrison doesn't deny climate change. I actually think this question of whether or not the right denies it is a little bit beside the point, because I think it there. Like I was saying before, there are different ways of dealing with an emergency. Just because somebody on the far right who has an intensely hierarchical worldview, you know, believes that the winners in our in our world, the people who have you know the most money and power, have it because they're somehow better and superior, and the people who don't have it. Um, don't have it because of some you know, moral, personal, or genetic failing. I mean, this is what it means to have a, a this intensely hierarchical worldview. When those people stop denying climate change, when they admit that it is happening, that doesn't mean that they're going to be willing to embrace a justice-based response that will actually lower emissions in line with science and bring populations along with them, it's much more likely that they will use it as a tool to advance a authoritarian agenda, a highly xenophobic agenda, a highly corporatist agenda, because that's just what they do, right? And so, you know, I'm more focused, honestly, on how we beat them, (laughs) you know, how we beat them, how we get them out of power, because I don't believe that they represent the majorities in any of these countries. And, and, you know, most of the polling shows that, you know, they usually win these elections through some, you know, form of strange, you know, election trickery. Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. He won the elections because of, you know, the dysfunction in the American system. I mean, God knows what happened with Jair Bolsonaro. Lula da Silva should have won that election, but he was put in jail on trumped-up charges in a trial in which you had open collusion between the prosecutor and the judge, and then the judge was then made justice minister under Bolsonaro's government, right? Um, So these are really, really shady elections in which these people are coming to power. So I think we need to figure out honestly how to beat them instead of trying to come up with some sort of a response to the climate crisis that would be appealing to them. Because there is no response to the climate crisis that would be both appealing to them and and would actually get the job done without sacrificing huge numbers of people, you know. And the, and the other piece of this is, I think we are starting to see a growth in openly eco-fascist tendencies on the right. You know, these they may not be in power yet, but they are power adjacent, right? So these are you know figures who don't deny climate change, but you know, see it as some kind of divine, you know, cleansing of lesser humans and are very, very focused on making sure that borders in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the United States and Canada are as hardened as possible from, you know, the growing numbers of migrants, many of them climate migrants.
0: I think that's really important what you say there. And, um, I was wondering in a lot of the, the, the lot of the debate, there's a lot of the talk. There's this kind of cognitive deficit idea that if people just knew the facts that things would change uh-huh. and they'd get on board and, uh, you know, and be willing to make the kind of changes that are necessary. I'm interested in you talk about, you know, well,
1: Australia is a pretty, I think keep your eye on Scott Morrison, um, because. I think yeah, that's really going to show show us that this is not about them not understanding it. It's something much more complicated going on. Scott Morrison does not deny climate change. Yeah. He's been very clear about that. Scott Morrison is one of the architects of what's called the Pacific solution in Australia, which is this brutal immigration regime where boats are intercepted um, and migrants, uh, most of the migrants from wars are brought to these offshore detention facilities in places like Nauru and Manas. And of course, he's one of the huge advocates of building the world's largest coal mine, the Adani mine. There's no evidence that these fires that are incinerating the continent are serving as a wake up call for Scott Morrison. If anything, I think we're going to see a hardening of these views, right? Where I think the fact that so many Australians are becoming displaced internally will be used and it's already starting to be used by the right-wing press which is so powerful in Australia as a rationale for you know even more brutal anti-migrant policies right like we have to take care of our own who've lost their homes before we let in anybody else right and so you know the idea that he's going to somehow see the light is to me vanished you know it's a vanishingly unlikely uh, possibility and we also have to I think reckon with the fact that a lot of these guys are evangelical uh, Protestants he is a Pentecostal you know, comes from a very religious background and is part of this sort of right-wing religious global movement that is Folding climate disruption into this sort of rapture worldview, right? The idea that like the chosen people are saved and, you know, the damned are left behind. And they're kind of enacting that on earth, right? They are anointing themselves the chosen. And that is the rationale for hardening their borders and allowing the rest of the world that did not create this crisis to suffer its effects. Like they have the belief system already that allows them to rationalize that. And some of them have it very intensely.
0: Yeah, it's it's terrifying what you're saying there. we're talking earlier about this kind of fight in a way between different views and so forth. And I don't, you're familiar with the work of Dan Cahan at Yale and and this idea that there are different sets of values, you know, there may be collectivist kind of about participation and then the competitive, more market oriented, and then a maybe a hierarchical you know approach and and different kind of clusters of values and i thought that was a very interesting and it connected with the political position of voters what they were, whether they were on the right or the left and also how they saw intervention in markets and intervention in the climate and so forth and steve rayner who's a climate scientist at oxford talks about i guess the different kind of governance and and finding ways to put together approaches to solving problems that tap into these different viewpoints. So it's less yeah, about. To- I
1: think that it's like, yeah, but I also have a huge amount of trouble with some of this research, right? Because, you know, when they talk about people with a hierarchical worldview, they are talking about people who, as I said, have a worldview and they ask them questions in order to establish this. Like questions like, do you think that people essentially deserve their status in society? You know, and the, and the people who answer yes Have a hierarchical worldview. But, you know, our responses to the climate crisis, you know, within a UN context are based on this essentially naive assumption that we all have a common desire to save as many lives as possible in the way that we respond to this crisis. But that is simply not true of everybody who's being pulled here. And this is why I'm raising, like, we have to talk about, like, what role is this worldview, this evangelical worldview, that we are now in the end times and that this is God's will, and that the sinners and the non-believers, you know, are going to be punished anyway, what role does that play? Because according to you know the Yale research, if we understand that it's you know we, we're all filtering this through our various worldviews, and we're all essentially treating these worldviews as if they're equally valid, right? Then the logical conclusion of that is that we should come up with solutions, and they talk about this that don't trigger that right-wing worldview that that you know that won't be rejected because they respect that they have this hierarchical worldview that they you know want to believe that markets can fix things that they want to believe that technology can save us, and so then we're encouraged to put forward quote unquote solutions that will not be threatening, like geoengineering, uh, you know, like nuclear power, even if we know that they are incredibly dangerous. And so, you know, my position is we, you know, that worldview, the people who hold that that hierarchical worldview in the past five years alone have really taken the mask off. And what we're really talking about are neo-fascists, racists, misogynists, and I don't want to cater to their worldview. I want to beat them.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, well, you know, that's clearly... When you look at it like that, yes, these different sets of values. I I was going to talk about technology. You touched on it there. And I know there's uh, various strains of uh, uh, techno-utopian approaches to dealing with climate change, which are thriving in America and the, uh, the West Coast and so forth. Yet it would be foolish to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, I just wondering where do you think technology fits in? And I'm also interested in maybe, you know, in connecting this with Chomsky's observations about <laughs> Silicon Valley and the privatization of the rewards yeah. to the large corporations. And this ties into this yeah. question of the Green New Deal. And, you know, is it OK for, you know, business as usual, for companies to make profits with a sense of priority and the hierarchy that it gets in, in 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 playing their role in whatever the, the version of the Green New Deals that come forward or just you know the, the existing power structures that are there uh very germane in terms of technologies how they're you know financed how they're developed who gets the reward from them and in a sense just continuing with you know, I guess some kind of business as usual. To what extent right. how how important is that? And what are your thoughts there, Naomi?
1: So I think we need obviously technology is a huge part of how we're going to do this and i'm not anti you know although i i am anti you know techno solutionism in the sense that i don't think it is only some magical technology that's going to save us there's no doubt that the fact that we are able to talk about scenarios where we get to 100% renewable energy you know for electricity in a decade is only possible because of these huge technological breakthroughs that have happened And it has happened through major public investments in R&D by Germany, by China, and also uh, market innovations, no doubt. But if we want this to... Roll out globally as quickly as it needs to roll out, then it really raises very big questions about intellectual property, right? You know, Elizabeth Warren, in her Green New Deal, she talks about these huge investments that we need to make in green R and D, and then she says, you know, to American businesses, you know, according to her plan, you can have access to this publicly funded technology to make your green products, but only if you make your products in America. And, you know, (laughs) I'm a little concerned about this sort of American protectionism around that and whether or not we have a right to hoard the jobs ourselves. But also, you know, I have real questions about the, the intellectual property for those breakthroughs, right? Because I don't think that we can roll it out globally as quickly as we need to roll it out with the current intellectual property Uh, legal infrastructure that we have right now. And we need to open source this is the bottom line, right? We need everybody to have access. Uh, And I think that's part of our climate debt. I think that's part of paying our climate debt to the world is making those investments and making the technology open source and accessible to the rest of the world. So, you know, I think that that's one piece of it. And the truth is that so much of the wealth of Silicon Valley right now rests on public infrastructure and public investments, you know, whether it's the internet itself, whether it's GPS, um, you know, companies like Uber are, you know, uh, exist because of the huge investments that taxpayers have made in what has become the technological backbone of their business model. And we have had a regulatory infrastructure over the past 30 years that has just handed this over to them uh, and said, do what you will, right, and not put any conditions on it. So, you know, we have have to have a different IP approach. But I think a lot of this, you know, if we look at the world, and this is where I think looking at the World War II precedent is relevant, you know, during the war mobilization, when you had factories that were getting huge government contracts to uh, suddenly make fighter jets, you know, instead of automobiles, I mean, they were not turning profits for a while. And so I guess the bottom line is, you know, I'm not saying there's not going to be any profit in any of this, but I am saying that profit can't guide this, that it's too important. We have too little time. We have procrastinated for too long that the measure has to be what will do this fastest, what will get this done, not what will make the most money, you know, what will incentivize business the most.
0: Well, just talking about business without going to the, the the fossil fuel industry and the power they have and so forth, but just more generally, do you think social movements are doing enough to deal with untrammeled corporate power? We talk about Extinction Rebellion and so forth with a lot of focus on governments. What about and, and the finance industry, which is just so, <laughs> so powerfully... Embedded and driving so much of not just the the fossil fuel investments, but actually when you unpack it a little bit, you know this drive for relentless economic growth
1: I think there's been debates within extinction rebellion, and of course extinction rebellion isn't monolithic it's decentralized, and there's there are, you know different extinction rebellions all, all around the world and I know that some of them have decided that they feel that the targets became too that they weren't legible in the sense of like, you know, why are we blocking traffic here? Why are we stopping public transit when we believe in public transit, you know, and are looking to bring that same sense of like urgency around civil disobedience, but have the targets be a key part of the carbon story, right? So that would mean more action that is targeting banks and hedge funds and insurers and the, the money pipeline, essentially, that is funding the continued expansion of the fossil fuel frontier. And there are a lot of groups that are now cooperating around around a campaign that is sort of, I think, informally going under the banner Stop the Money Pipeline. So if people are interested in it, they can go to stopthemoneypipeline.com, I believe, you know, which is going after... Black Rock and just won a big black uh, victory with Black Rock, although there's more to be done, and JP. Morgan Chase is another major target because they have spent billions of dollars financing new fossil fuel projects since the Paris Accords were signed. So my hope is that we will see a more strategic use of civil disobedience and and less sort of symbolic.
0: Right. Yes, absolutely. I'm mindful of the time. Now, we talk about big companies, but we're all implicated in some way or other in terms of our personal consumption. And, you know, there are strong arguments put forward for, you know, the the importance of our own personal consumption. Others worry that this is, you know, uh, that really that's, you know, fine, but actually it's really through social change. Uh, and political change that that we're actually really going to be able to deal with the scale of this problem in the time frame that we've got. So what's your advice to individuals?
1: Well, to, I guess, paraphrase my friend Bill McKibben, like, I think the best thing we can do as individuals is to stop acting like so much like individuals and join movements. And some of what we will do in movements are about exercising our consumer power, but to do it in concert with one another, right? I mean, this is where the sort of consumer boycotts have tended to be most effective. Um, So to give an example of, you know, we were just talking about the banks. So, you know, a a lot of people hear that about, you know, what an individual bank has invested in new fossil fuel projects. And they say, well, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to cancel my account and I'm going to move my money over. And that's great. uh, As long as you find somewhere to put your money that genuinely is a little bit better. But you know, more effective is if you organize as part of a movement for there to be, you know, a day where thousands and thousands of people all move their money from that one bank, right? Or chop up their credit cards from that one bank because that's something that they're really going to feel. That's something that's going to get the attention of their shareholders and so on. Um so I think we also have to be strategic about our, you know, how we exercise our consumer power. You know, I think there's no doubt that certain kinds of consumer behavior and certain people you know have more power than others in terms of the symbolic power like of when a higher profile person changes their lifestyle what that signals to other people right you know kevin anderson makes this argument a lot that it isn't about the individual carbon that is saved if you decide not to fly it's the deciding not to fly and the talking about it and the sort of the normalizing of that decision and the impact on your social circle and on people who hear about it. So I think that, you know, that's more difficult to measure. So, I, you know, I don't discount it, but I do make the argument that the climate movement historically and the environmental his, movement historically has tended to overemphasize individual action. And. Underemphasized our collective power and the responsibility, the outsized responsibility of the polluters and, and the banks that finance them.
0: I just saw some figures that said that I think in Sweden, the international flights have fallen by 5% and in Germany. I think 12% just in the last year. So, you know, I think it's where they've got word in Swedish for is it, flight shame. So, um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I was wondering a last, last question here. And uh, I don't know, somebody came up with this pithy and terrifying phrase, I guess, which said, uh, whenever climate change policies are seen to conflict with economic growth and development, climate change loses every time. That sounds like me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what does that mean in terms of, because there is this uh, interlocking corporate growth, finance seeking corporate growth, governments... Uh, so you have this kind of situation where one page of the newspaper is talking about climate, if, mm-hmm. if it is, and then the next page is is complaining about economic growth. I've interviewed various interesting uh, figures on talking about degrowth. Big topic uh, we're at the end of the interview, but I'm just wondering yeah. if any thoughts on, on that connection.
1: Well, I think what, what we certainly know is that when climate responses to the climate crisis increase the cost of living for people, those responses tend to be short-lived and to generate backlash and to become particularly unpopular during times of economic hardship, right? So before the financial crisis, the global financial crisis in 2006 and six and seven, there was a lot of momentum on, on sort of the, uh, changing our lifestyle and you know, a lot of momentum towards carbon taxes and so on. Once the financial crisis really started to bite, then there was a a strong backlash to it. So I think the benefit of a Green New Deal response is that, you know, at its core, it is both a climate plan and a jobs plan. And if it is designed properly, it is a plan to create millions upon millions of unionized family supporting jobs. It is also a plan to invest in the kind of of social infrastructure that makes life tangibly better and less stressful for everybody in society. Those universal programs like healthcare and education and childcare. And so I think if we can pull people back from the economic edge, which is where pretty much everybody is residing these days, right? Then we win ourselves some space to start introducing carbon pricing and other policies that do demand that we make changes and make sacrifices. But there has to be an investment in that social infrastructure, in that basic well-being that comes from having a stable job and the basic social safety net that I think will allow us to do the right things when it comes to climate and will make it harder for those corporate interests to say you have to choose between jobs and the environment. You have to choose between caring about the end of the world and the end of the month, which is a strategy that has been very effective for a long time.
0: That's a great vision. What's next for you, Naomi? Are you working on another book. There's a lot of momentum on the, these the Green New Deal initiatives. Uh, where are you focusing?
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm living in the States right now and we are less than a year away from the election that will or will not defeat Donald Trump. And I'm having a lot of trouble thinking about anything else. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to... I'm not, not going to be disappearing to write any books this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing your great work and your ideas and inspiration. And I wish you the best of success with your ongoing work and the great political fight <laughs> unfolding over the next 12 months.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.